Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abual Samad. And so this is episode seven. It's episode 007, and it's uh, the holidays. So you know what? Pick your pick your poison. Um, this this week we've got <laughs> we've got a little arrogance. We've got some disruption and uh, some communication. Sounds good. Why don't we dive right in? All right. So the first thing we're going to do is the garage. And Sam, I had this car the last time we spoke, the uh, Kia Cadenza, and now you've got it. So what do you think? Was I was I on track? Or uh, no, I think you were pretty much on track. Um, the Cadenza is actually gone now. And uh, since we were a little a few days late in uh, recording this episode. <laughs> yeah, that's just, sorry. My company got sold. And so I'm just oh, dealing no worries. with uh, tap dancing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in general, <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I, I agreed with what you had uh, on the Cadenza, what you said about the Cadenza. I mean, it's a really nice car. Um, very roomy. I mean, huge back seat. Uh, so, you know, if you've got a, a family to haul around, uh, you could put the kids in the back seat. And um, chances are, you know, unless you're about seven feet tall, uh, they won't be able to reach the back of your seat. Yeah, so uh, very, very impressive car. One of the things I did notice about it, because I actually had to load up and uh, take a bunch of video gear to a shoot, um, the back seat, the seat back doesn't fold oh, down. You know, I, I never, so I never tried and that. And it has I, a large I, I trunk. I didn't, didn't notice that. Yeah. So I normally I just assume that most cars it, it does these days, especially a front wheel drive sedan like that. But uh, no, you couldn't fold the seat back down unless there was some like ninja switch I missed. But mm. I didn't I couldn't find it. So um, I, it wasn't a huge yeah, deal. That trunk is very large. For gear. <laughs> and, it, and it has uh, nicely hidden hinges so you can actually load it like right up to the hilt. And, the, and when you close the lid, the hinges won't crush your stuff. So it's, yeah. you know, again, um, nice touch. So, yeah, I've actually uh, moved on from the Cadenza now and I'm driving the uh, 2017 GMC Acadia, uh, which is uh, it's been it's it's interesting to see how uh, GMC has changed the Acadia this go around for their the second generation of it. Yeah, it got smaller and lighter, um, and it almost sort of overlaps with the yeah, terrain. It's, it's actually ways, still or, a good bit bigger that... than the terrain. Uh, it kind of splits the difference between where the original Acadia and the rest of GM's Lambda family were when they launched almost 10 years ago, and where the uh, the Acadia and the um, Chevy Equinox are. Uh, so it's more more of a midsizer, so it's it's several inches shorter than the old one uh you can still get it as a as a three row but um interestingly you know talking to some folks at gm uh about you know what their strategy this time as they replace those uh, the first generation of their big crossovers is you know they're they're kind of dividing them a little bit more uh compared to what they did last time last time you know all you know there were ultimately four different variants although uh one that the saturn uh, only lasted a couple of years before the Saturn brand went away, and uh, the uh, they have the the Buick Enclave, the GMC Acadia, and the Chevy Traverse. They're all exactly the same size with the same powertrains, uh, 
uh, they all had unique styling and, you know, different levels of equipment, but they were, um, you know, they, they were all the same size, same packaging. And so this time, uh, you know, they made the Acadia a fair bit smaller. And from talking to people at GM recently, you know, it seems that the, they found that a lot of the Acadia buyers were more likely to only use the first two rows of seats. And, you know, if they use the third row at all, it tended to be very much a, an occasional use thing, whereas traverse buyers were more likely to uh, have more passengers and actually use that third row more regularly. Oh, that's an interesting split, too, because it, it's like first of the first generation of that Lambda crossover was like classic GM branding. Like, I mean, you, you could go right back to the, the 50s, right, where the the Buick, the Pontiac, the Oldsmobile, the Chevy, you know, the Cadillac. They well, the Cadillac was a little bit different case, but they all sort of you know had had that brand identity right. on the same parts, <laughs> you know, and that's that's very much what the Lambda was. Are they going to you know bring the the other vehicles on that Lambda platform down to the size of the terrain, or are they going to leave the terrain smaller and and you know make the uh, traverse slightly larger because it's it does get that third row use. Uh, that's more, something that I can't really talk about yet. Um, they're going to be showing the they're going to show the traverse. <laughs> they announced today uh, as we're recording this that the uh, the new traverse, the 2018 traverse, will be unveiled at the Detroit Auto Show next month. Um, so all the information about that is still uh yet to be announced publicly it's uh so we'll we'll find out in a few weeks but um but usually when people say to me like i can't talk about that that means the question was dead on so i'm going to pat myself on the back <laughs> how does it compare with like stuff that it competes with like the honda pilot the, the Acadia is really Highlander. nice um it's it's uh, surprisingly fuel efficient uh it's getting about 23 almost 24 miles per gallon especially in highway driving um and, uh, you know, the one I have is the all-terrain model. They've got, you know, several different trim levels as usual. And the all-terrain only comes as a two-row, so it's only a five-seater. Um, whereas the other ones, you can get them with a third row, which is obviously less roomy than it was on the previous generation. But the, um, you know, with, with only two rows in there, the back seat, uh, the second row, uh, very much like the cadenza, is huge in terms of legroom and and headroom. One thing I have noticed is the uh, the belt line seems really high, uh, and you know, so you know, if you like to drive with your elbow up on the the windowsill, uh, unless you're you know particularly tall, uh, you probably won't find it very comfortable uh, to do that. But aside from that, you know, I don't really have any major complaints about it. Uh, you know, I think it's I think it's a, a it's a good size, you know, midsize SUV. You know, so if the if the previous generation, you know, which was pretty much the same size as the uh, Tahoe, um, you know, full size body on frame SUVs, um, if that was a little too big for your tastes, um, you know, but the terrain is a little too small, then, you know, I think this one is kind of just right. You know, it's in that in that middle space there where GM didn't really have anything in terms of a crossover uh up, up till now um you know so you've got the, the terrain and equinox as as the compacts you know competing with the honda crvs and ford escapes of the world um you know and and now you've got something in that that middle middle uh step there so we'll see what else they come up with to replace the the current equinox and and the um or not the equinox the traverse 
and the Buick Enclave, uh, which I think the, if I'm not, if I recall correctly, the Enclave was actually the first of the Lambdas to debut. Um, and as far as I know, yeah. Buick is not showing anything. They're not showing anything new at the Detroit Auto Show. Uh, so presumably we'll see the Enclave replacement uh, sometime um, either at the either Chicago or perhaps at the New York Auto Show in April. Well, you know, it's an interesting case, too, because I'm not sure, A, I haven't really looked at the sales figures, but I'm not really sure that they necessarily have a sales problem with the Enclave because it's it's a big crossover vehicle. It's it's aged, but it's mm -hmm. it's aged very gracefully. That's still a nice, nice car to drive. Um, and they're they're just launching the Envision. So I think their their attention at this point is probably toward getting some buyers for that. Um, and. I actually saw one on the road, which was, was neat. I was like, what is that? Oh, yeah. oh neato. <laughs> and I actually said neato. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, the Acadia, the, the trade-offs that they've made, like, you know, when you get it in two row version, uh, because it's, they've decided to make that third row more occasional use, you do get that, that benefit of like, it's a loose fit vehicle, you know, right? Like not loose fit, like fit and finish, but sort of like relaxed fit jeans. Yeah. Right? You've like, got, you've got lots of, lots of space to stretch out. And, you know, you, you don't, you never feel cramped in there. Uh, like you do sometimes if you're sitting in the backseat yeah. of some of the compacts, um, you know, and the Envision, you know, similarly, the Envision's a little bit smaller, than where the Acadia is today, but, you know, uh, bigger than the, the terrain and Equinox. So, you know, they're, they're kind of putting together what seems to be this, um, you know, kind of, uh, more granular, uh, stair step up the line, you know, so you can, you should be able to find, you know, between the three brands, uh, you should be able to find one, actually the four brands, including Cadillac that, fits you just right, you know, depending on what your needs are um, and what your wants are in terms of luxury and, and equipment and size. Uh, so, there, you know, there, yeah. there should be one for, for everybody. Yeah. And, the, you know, the Equinox and the terrain at this point are feeling every bit of their age. You know, they were they were acceptable, I think, when they were new. Um, and now, like when I get in one of those, I'm just like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow uh hello 2008 um and, and it's fine they're a fine vehicle and they again they're another one that like even in that sale that size class right the crv rav4 kind of size they, they offer a little bit more at least length i feel so they're they're actually a little bit bigger than some of the, the competitors, yeah they're, at least they feel yeah they're, they're actually closer lengthwise they're closer in size to you know the next size up you know think cars like the ford edge uh than they are to the crv and escape um, although they, they are, they aren't as wide as some of the midsizers. Right, yeah. Narrow, yeah. Um, so back to the Acadia too, like the, I'm assuming cause you had the, uh, all terrain, um, it had the V6, the 310 horsepower V6, um, but they offer it with a turbo as well too. Right? Uh, yeah, they, I believe it's available with a two liter turbo. I don't know if you can get the two liter, uh, with the all terrain, uh, trim package so i think that one's v6 only but other other version other variants of the acadia are available with the two liter turbo i think and it has with the v6 it's got that the transmission we talked about last time the 6f uh or what is it it's the gm actually it's gm doesn't call it the 6f yeah, right well it's, you're thinking of the nine speed uh, no, I, I thought it only had a six speed. It, it does have a six with, speed with now. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. sometime in 2017, uh, probably for, you know, 2018 model year, uh, when they switch over to 2018 model year sometime in mid year, 
they will probably uh, start installing the nine, the new nine speed automatic in there. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, that's probably just, they just don't have that many, right? They're, they're ramping <laughs> up production point. on those transmissions right now. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the six. No, it's, it's fine. Uh, I mean, it's a good smooth shifting transmission. Um, you know, you no, you're not going to have any real complaints about it. Um, it certainly doesn't have any of the, the classic CVT characteristics that a lot of customers don't like. Yeah. If the one thing I remember about that transmission, well, it, I think GM's programming is a little better than Ford's on that one, but um, it's got, it's gotten better biggest... over the years. Uh, early on when they first launched it back about uh, 2006 or 2007, um, the Fords were actually smoother. Uh, the GMs had some had some issues early on with the shift quality, but they they got better over time. They they upgraded uh, some of the internal components and uh, changed some of the control software, and so it's it's quite a bit better now than it used to be. Huh? Um, does it give you a kick down when you ask for mm-hmm. it, or does it make? Yeah, you no, it, it it gives you, oh, it'll nice. give you a kick down when you need it. You know, so it doesn't you know it doesn't have any issues with um accelerating to you know merge onto a freeway or, or make a pass when you need to um so yeah it's got you know and the uh the current generation uh is about it's more it's about almost 750 pounds lighter than the old one uh with you know similar power so you know performance is definitely going to be better than the previous generation model yeah, well, and, and the fuel economy, you touched on that. You're getting 20s. Like I, the best I was ever able to get out of a Lambda might have been about 17 combined. Yeah. So uh, that's that's big. Yeah, <laughs> I know, mean, that's, that's really today, good. You know, today I had to go to a meeting and, you know, the temperature was in, the, um, you know, about uh, 12 or 13 degrees out. So it was pretty cold out. So it wasn't quite as good today as it was over the weekend when it was uh, slightly warmer. Uh, but, uh, you know, dropped down to about uh, 19 today. Uh, but overall, yeah, it's, it's been quite good. I'm quite, quite impressive. So there's another choice in the, uh, family crossover class that is not starved for choice at this point. Like that's where, that's where all the life in the automobile business is. Yeah. Well, with GM also announcing today that they're going to have, uh, some temporary shutdowns at five of their car assembly plants in January, uh, due to slowing sales of cars. Um, you know, that's everybody's rushing to the, uh, uh, to crossovers and, and sport utilities. And I think, uh, you know, it's, if you're, if you actually like, certainly like me, if you prefer a car over a utility, uh, then, um, you know, now's probably a good time to go get a good deal on one. Cause there's plenty, plenty of inventory, yeah, especially right. I was gonna say, especially now get yourself a nice ATS. There you, if you go. Want something that that tidy. Cause they're having a hell of a time selling that car and it's a good oh, I know. car. It's a, it's a great car. Um, so all right. Well, speaking of good cars, uh, in my driveway this week, I got a uh, two, 2017 Honda Ridgeline, um, and and I I like this truck a lot. Like this is the truck that every truck buyer should buy, um, and they, like they're kind of a bit player in the market. But uh, I mean, especially when you compare them to like the F one fifty or the you know the GMC and the Chevy together. Uh, but I don't think Honda ever had any plans for world domination with their truck. Sort of the same as, as Toyota with the Tundra. They kind of they wanted metered out success. Um, and I think they've really achieved it. The thing that I like a lot about the Ridgeline and I've kind of always liked about the Ridgeline is that it's it's really well thought out. It's not just like, well, we're going to build a pickup. And so we're going to start with a full frame 
and we're going to put a big V8 in it and solid axles. And, and there you go. Pick up. Um, they and, and this is also kind of its Achilles heel, I guess, too. But they, they really thoroughly um, redefined what a pickup is, I, I, at least in the modern idiom. I mean, there's been pickups like this in the past. The Subaru Brat, the Volkswagen Caddy. They were all a little smaller. Yeah, um, they were they weren't really anything like the Ridgeline. I mean, there, I don't think there's ever really been anything quite like the Ridgeline. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, and yes, it is a pickup built on a minivan, uh, you know, sedan, whatever set of bones. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, mi minivan fine. sport, you know, sport utility uh, or minivan crossover. Yeah. You know, I mean, it shares its platform with the yeah. um, uh, with the pilot, the Honda pilot and the uh, uh, Acura MDX and the Odyssey. Yeah, and, and none of this is no. bad. I'm not criticizing so much as I'm sort of pointing out um, because I really like it. I think that those are actually, there's a lot of benefit to that. And, you know, you can't knock the Ridgeline and adore the Jeep Comanche <laughs> in the same breath. Like, because they're the same mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, in, very much in so. Essence. Um, you know, the, the Comanche didn't have a frame. The frame pieces they made for the Comanche were sort of welded together boxed sections, actually. It was um, something that was there was a, a hornet that was like the forerunner of it. I actually wrote an article about it that never got published. So maybe I should publish that article. Absolutely. <laughs> um, uh, I think it was the Jeep cowboy. Um, but the, uh, the Ridgeline, you know, there's a lot of myth and sort of opinion out there about it. And I was actually trying to pitch the guys at Autoblog about this. I don't know if they're going to pick it up. So I'll just use my, my talking points here. Um, so there's just sort of, I came up with five ways people are wrong about the Ridgeline. Um, and now because it's winter, the first one is that the ridgeline is too weak to plow. Nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's the certainly it's not a truck that you want to use as like your, you know, landscaping commercial operation plow all night kind of truck. It, correct. It's not that kind of thing. Um, but that beats the hell out of even like an F-250 that that's it's not a nice thing to do to your well truck. i mean you know when you um, when you consider you know that it's got comparable power you know it's in the 300 horsepower range to what a base f-150 mm -hmm. offers um and yep. you know it's quite a bit lighter than an f-150 you know it's going to have decent performance and you know you put a set of snow tires on that thing on an all-wheel drive ridge line and you probably you know it's probably going to do fine with a plow on there it's actually going to do better um than the F-150 because, you know, the F-150 has that very old school kind of four wheel drive setup. Uh, the Ridgeline has a front. I mean, it's, I know front, it's front wheel, it's drive, wheel base, drive biased, which actually, yeah, you're right with the extra weight of a plow on there. Uh, I'm uh, right. Is the, is the Ridgeline actually rated to hold a plow, though? I mean, the front structure. So the one that I found is uh, it's called the Meyer home plow. And basically what you do is you mount a class two receiver hitch to the okay. front and you might have to trim the fascia a little bit. And then the plow actually mounts into the receiver of that hitch. So it's, it is a light duty plow, but you know, again, a lot of people that buy pickups, especially the cowboy Cadillac kind mm -hmm. of pickups, they are taking a heavy duty vehicle and using it for light duty. Oh, absolutely. Work. So I, I don't see a problem if you have even a pretty decent sized piece of property using you know, your ridgeline with a light duty plow to, to get the job done. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a product that exists. And, you know, a lot of times truck stuff is overkill for for what it's used for. So I was I was psyched. <laughs> There's there is a plow and it actually works in the Grand Cherokee, too. Oh, really? So I was like, oh, if my if my driveway didn't need to be repaved, I could use that. Um, also, the uh, 
four-wheel drive system in the Ridgeline. It doesn't have a low range, but it uh, it will vector torque. So it actually makes the vehicle handle better. Uh, and it's it's got a, a locking feature as far as I, I'm pretty sure it has a locking feature. So you can, uh, while it doesn't have low range, you can still lock it and get your, you know, 50-50 distribution. So it's, you know, it's a little different, but again, it will absolutely plow for you <laughs> if that's what you needed to okay. do. Um, the Ridgeline is too weak to tow. Uh, again, Bopkiss. Uh, it tows more than most people ever need to tow. Um, pretty sure it's rated for five thousand. I, th- I think it's five thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, plus payload. So uh, I, I didn't actually do the math on this yet, but my thought was okay. So you know that some of those big Rams, like the Ram fifteen hundred, when you get the like dub- the double cab with the short bed and the four wheel drive and stuff. That its payload is like 500 pounds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's like that's a grocery store run with your whole family in the car. Like that's that's not much at all. Um, and my my thought was like, oh, I wonder if the Ridgeline, you could load it up and still have a decent payload. And I, so I didn't look at payload, but 5000 pounds is more than, you know, your again, your weekend warrior really is going to tow a lot of times. Or if you've got a small boat, it's definitely going to handle that. You're quite correct in saying it's 5000 pounds is not quite enough to comfortably haul like a, a car car trailer and like if you have a classic car or race car or something like that's depends i mean if you're towing a lotus you know then yeah it'll be plenty or or a miata yeah Yeah, certainly a miata would work um so it depends on what you're towing if you're if you're in the business of hauling like you know classic detroit you know big iron stuff not gonna work for that but yeah i'm just looking at the specs right right now uh the front wheel drive ridge line is rated at 3500 pounds and the all-wheel drive is 5000 pounds and the uh, payload capacity uh, ranges between 1450 and 1580, um, depending on the trim level and, and two wheel drive versus all wheel drive. Right. So that's it's, honestly, any Ridgeline is going to potentially have a better payload than some real pickups, mm-hmm. and depending on how they're equipped. So hooray, <laughs> you know, cause uh, all the Ridgelines are extended caps, you know, they're all, they're all pretty comfy and roomy. Um, okay. So that brings me to my next point is the Ridgeline is expensive. Not really. Uh, Have you looked the at the price of I, an F-150 or a Ram or Silverado lately? Right. <laughs> so and that's how they get you right. Like the uh, regular pickups, certainly they can have an attractive price or a highly incentivized price or a very low starting price. You start adding stuff to it. They get expensive very quickly. Um, right. I mean, you know, those from, those low priced versions are the the what they call the work trucks that they sell to contractors. No, I mean, seriously, <laughs> I mean, they call the work trucks. Yeah. I mean, in fact, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, GM actually has the WT designation. You know, that's the trim level right. on those, you know, literally for work truck. Right. The WT, like I was surprised to see that they still make that. That is the truck that makes you cry by the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it comes with steel <laughs> like, wheels and, you know, basic AM FM radio and, you know, like no, no amenities at all. You know, they're, they're designed, you know, for contractors and, you know, they'll, they'll put, you know, equipment racks on the back, you know, for the utility workers and things like that. Um, so, yeah. you know, th- those aren't the ones that regular customers buy. Right. And the ones that regular customers buy are sort of just, you know, they're, they're gussied up versions though. So you're starting with a truck that's built to be like high profit, cheap, 
and just just honestly disposable like if you see an f-150 or a silver i don't want to pick on the f-150 even though it's you know the best-selling truck um you know the ram 1500 or the silverado 1500 or something that's actually been used for work they get used up quick um you know every four to five years you know the the buyers that buy a lot and they're they're turning over their fleets just because the trucks start to age out they start to get get worn um I, i don't I don't know that that's really quite the same issue that you're going to have with the Ridgeline. Certainly it's, it's definitely not aimed at the work truck market. It's aimed at the like suburban truck buyer who also uses it to commute and, you know, pull the boat to the lake on the weekend. So it's, it's a different demographic and it's not expensive when you start to consider like it'll top out in the, you'd have a hard time pushing 50 Mm -hmm. with the Ridgeline. Um, and it's going to be very nicely equipped. It may not be quite like King Ranch equipped, but it's true. But that, but then again, a complaints. King Ranch doesn't have a trunk in the back, which is something right. that only the Ridgeline is the only truck on the market with an enclosed trunk in the back of the bed. Right. And there I mean, so there are some goofy features, too, like the, the way they've got the, the transducer to turn the bed into a giant speaker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but hey, okay. actually, you'd but, be surprised how well that works. I, I went to a tailgate party um for uh, the Detroit Lions home opener back in back in September uh, that Honda hosted, and we had a bunch of ridge lines, and you know they they turned on the stereos in these things, you know, blasting the music out of the back of these things. It actually sounds really good. Yeah, well, I mean, it's honestly what it is. It, it, the, in the hi-fi world, that's a that's a pe- that's a planar speaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, for years, there were lots of guys who loved their MagnaPans. Um, so yeah, I mean, it 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 does work, uh, and it it's. It's cool, um, but it's again, it's like one of those. OK, fine. It's the same thing as like, you know, you can put ice in the little compartment and cool your beer while you're on the way to the lake. Uh, it, yes. But, you know, there's just goofy features on regular trucks, too. So, you know, it, what, what it is, it's a great um, it's a great personal use truck. You know, if if absolutely if you're, if you're buying a truck, you know, if, if you don't need a work truck, you know, if you're buying a truck for your own personal use, and, you know, using it for tailgate parties or to go camping or, you know, whatever, you know, hauling bales of straw, um, you know, it's great for that. Yeah. And it's, that's where, you know, I definitely come down where, where people will say the Ridgeline is not really a truck. I think that's nonsense. Actually, it is a truck. It's it's a variation on the theme uh, for sure. But it's it's kind of very sensible. Uh, it's the truck that I would buy. Mm-hmm. Um and because I don't have a farm yet, <laughs> so I don't I don't need that kind of truck. But I, you know, it'd be nice to have a truck that, yeah, I, I can commute in it and it gets decent fuel economy and uh, I can you know feel comfortable that I, I can put the snowblower in the back of it and take it, you know, where, you know, I can go over to my mother-in-law's or something with it. You know, like it's it's useful. It holds the family. It's comfortable. It's quiet. It's certainly better to drive than any other truck. It, oh yeah there's like steering it's got, it's got fantastic and, ride quality too yeah i was gonna say it rides like a ballerina it's fantastic it's great to drive um and that the v6 uh i no EcoBoost v6 snarls like that honda engine i got on the highway with it the other day and i you know you can the vtex kicked in and it was great <laughs> it was it just took on this hard metallic edge and i was like yeah yeah, and then I looked down. I was going way too fast. And and, and of um, course now you know the the new gener the second generation model actually looks more like a conventional pickup truck too. Which you know it was it was a deliberate choice on the part of Honda 
you know, they they heard the complaints about the the styling of the original. Uh, you know, the the people that bought the original one loved all the various features that you've been talking about. But you know, there's a lot of customers that didn't really like the way it looked. And so this time they made it look more like a pickup and, you know, it's, it seems to be helping sales. Yeah. I mean, and you're damned if you do damned, if you don't, you know, the first one I thought looked a little goofy, but then it wasn't too far off from some of the, uh, you know, other stuff on the market. What was the, um, the Chevy avalanche. Gosh, we, I was going to say, we forget so fast. <laughs> and then it was the avalanche. Um, and the avalanche had that same kind of weird C pillar treatment and, you know, full body side versus the, the split bed. Um, and you know, like the, the Ridgeline, that was the largest stamping their body presses could make. And, and Honda has, you know, the, I think they've still got the quick change kind of body presses. So in their plants, the body press has to be able to make the stampings for every vehicle. Right. Right. Like, yeah, all their plants uh, so are designed can, for flexibility. Right. Um, so now they've gone to two body side stamping. So the cab and the bed are separate, um, but it's still a unit body. Uh, and overall, like, so the unit body is going to ride so much better than a full frame pickup. It's, it's overall going to have a lot more strength. Um, you know, not for maybe like towing 30,000 pounds, but just overall, it's going to be a stiffer, more rigid structure for the suspension to mount to, which is why it rides better, which is why it's lighter on its feet. Cause it's not as heavy. Um, and it's why it gets better fuel economy. It's so Given, like you say, personal use, it, it's absolutely a truck um, and it's it's a truck for truck people. The buyer demographics are actually really similar to GMC buyers. They're just a few years younger, like a couple of years younger. Um, and, uh, you know, so overall, like there are truck people buying these trucks. And so I, I just wanted to put that to rest. That's all. Uh, I was very impressed with it. Um, and I, I think that if if it didn't have the Honda badge on it, if it were if this were the next F-150, or Ranger. Uh, I, the, well, I don't know. I mean, the Ranger is going to be kind of like that, right? Yeah. Like the, it's going to well, be. I think, the, uh, yeah. as far, well, as far as we know, you know, if assuming the Ranger is built, the new Ranger is built on the, you know, a derivative of the, uh, the current global Ranger platform, that's going to be a body right. on frame. It's not going to be a unit body like this one. Okay. Um, I apparently took my eye off the global Ranger ball and didn't realize it wasn't. Um, unibody but yeah i mean it, it could be a great ranger or it, it, i honestly think that this is so much better than what they sell as the just regular f-150 in so many ways like there's definitely a case for the work truck but all the other variants the the ones that actually get sold so much are not as good as the ridgeline in you know the, the way they get used so if if this had a Ford badge on it, I'm sure there would be a lot of people who are very upset, but there'd also be a lot of people who just bought it. Yeah, no, <laughs> no doubt. I mean, if Ford sold something like this, you know, say an F100 <clears throat> to, uh, you know, to appeal to, you know, the personal use truck buyers, um, you know, they could probably sell a lot of them. I bet they could. Yeah, maybe maybe off the I, next generation maybe, Explorer platform. Yeah. Yeah, maybe they're already working on it. We Who knows? Just talk to Mike Levine so he can say we won't comment on future <laughs> product. Ford, Ford's pretty buttoned up. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's talk about arrogance because arrogance is a thing. It's not mine, but um, you had a post this week. Uh, I think it was on Forbes mm -hmm. uh, where you talked about uh, Uber, uh, a couple of things about Uber. Um, and I completely agree with you that they are either arrogant 
uh, and they're run by terrible people. And that's why I will, I have vowed to um, never use an Uber. I don't care how nice they are. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're also, they, they had a little trouble with one of their uh, self-driving cars too. Yeah. So um, for those that uh, haven't been uh, watching the news uh, uh, last Tuesday or Wednesday of last week, uh, Uber launched, they expanded their um, self-driving car test program uh, where they're actually picking up passengers um, from Pittsburgh where they started uh, back in September uh, to San Francisco and um, since September, they've been driving. They've had their original fleet of Ford Fusions, self-driving Ford Fusions running around Pittsburgh. And um, for the San Francisco program, they have launched with the uh, Volvo XC90s that they're starting to use now. Uh, back in August, they announced a deal with Volvo um, to develop a self-driving car platform based on Volvo's uh, new scalable product architecture that uh, underpins the XC90 and the S90. Uh, so presumably, you know, what they're going to develop uh, is something bespoke, uh, a bespoke body uh, for Uber's use uh, as a ride hailing uh, platform using the, uh, the Volvo architecture uh, as the underpinnings. Um, and, Immediately, like within hours after they launched this in uh, San Francisco last week, um, we got illegally, of, I might yeah, add. Yeah, right. we'll, we'll get, get to that in a second. Um, we within hours of this launching, uh, there were at least two different videos posted of two different vehicles, two different Uber test vehicles running red lights in San Francisco. Um, so that's not a good start. One of them, um, was very close to a pedestrian, uh, when that happened. Uh, so that's not a good start for yeah, well, I mean, uh, an autonomous vehicle the, program. You know, if their answer had been like, well, it should have been in the Uber, you know, I wouldn't have put it past them. That's not yeah, what they well, said. It's, it wasn't, wasn't far <laughs> off from that. Uh, you know, yeah. they quickly, they quickly blamed the safety drivers who were in the cars, you know, so that even though these cars are capable of autonomous operation, um, they all have. Uh, a safety driver behind the wheel uh, to take over in, in the event of an emergency and an engineer riding in the right front seat or the left, uh, yeah, the right front seat. Um, and they're carrying passengers in the back. Um, and then uh, not long after that, uh, the state of California came out and said, uh, you know, basically you know, contacted Uber and said, we want you to stop this test program right now because um, you know, California, they passed a law a couple of years ago Um to enable companies to test their self-driving cars uh, on public roads. Uh, but in order to do that, uh, basically you have to go to the California DMV, pay $150 per, you know, um, fee uh, to get a permit to do this, you know, much like, you know, anybody who wants to register any other car has to pay you know, a registration fee to, to re register the car. Um, Uber decided that, uh, no, we don't, we don't think so. We're, we're not going to do it. And they have so far, uh, at least as of today, uh, which is Monday, uh, December 19th, they have still refused to get one of these test permits uh, for, for testing their vehicles. And so, so the state has threatened to go to court uh, to get uh, injunctive relief to, to stop the program. But why? So my, I guess my question is like, why? This is, this is why I think they're just hugely arrogant. Like, what's the problem with playing by, you know, by the rules, like play ball. If you want the, to this, make this it. has been Uber's MO since yeah. they launched seven years ago as a ride hailing platform in San Francisco. Uh, basically, everywhere they go, they just ignore whatever laws are in place for taxis. Um, you know, one of the few places where um, 
you know, they have actually obeyed the law uh, is in Austin, Texas, where last year or it was either earlier this year or last year, uh, there was a, a vote, you know, a referendum uh, where voters uh, said, you know, mm. that uh, ride hailing companies like Uber and Lyft have to do uh, back more thorough background checks on their drivers. And um, so both of those companies actually pulled out of the Austin market. So there's no ride hailing services in Austin uh, that I'm aware of at this point. Uh, but basically everywhere else they've gone, they, they just ignore whatever laws are in place, you know, covering taxi services and they just start operating and, you know, to, to hell with it. Yeah, um, guys, that doesn't help your case. Like, not only that, like just the statements that their CEO has, has made, he's just a reprehensible person. Not, yeah, Tra- not cool. Travis Kalanick is, is not a good person. Um, um and, and like the fact that there's just, apparently you can just you, spy on whoever you want. If you, yeah, well, there's that too. The, the uh, so-called uh, God mode in their platform. Um, <laughs> God mode. What a bunch of douchebags. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know if it's officially called that, but that's what it's been referred to in a lot of press reports. Uh, yeah. Essentially, what it does is it allows Uber employees to uh, track users, um, you know, where they are, you know, what they're doing. So if you have the Uber app on your phone, you can be tracked uh, even when you're not riding in an Uber vehicle. Uh, you know, they can they can track where you are. Uh, using the app uh, and then you know they have you know spied on on uh, media and reporters that have been critical of uber uh, they've also um, you know spied on various celebrities so you know there's just so many things that are just awful about this company you know the thing is you know i i support the principle of what Uber's wants to do in terms of disrupting the taxi business because, you know, the yeah, taxi just, business is, is pretty awful as well. I was just going to say, you know, certainly anytime you're bringing something new and different uh, to the market, you're going to run into the press and the press is going to react with a, well, that's different. So we don't like it uh, kind of way because, you know, it's honestly at the core of it where people and people don't tend to like change. On the other hand, what they're doing is absolutely uh, from a user perspective, fantastic. Uh, you can call up, you, you can pull up the app, you can get the car, it'll come. It's you know, usually a nicer experience than uh, riding in a traditional taxi cab. Certainly the taxi cab industry in most cities is a little protection racket. So that'd be great to break up. You know, we've got, you know, here in Boston, you, you buy the medallions, the medallions are worth a fortune. Um, and they've, the bottom has dropped out of that market because of Uber and Lyft. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Like you are coming in and you're, you're changing a market. So there's, there's good and bad. Like you're, you are really putting the squeeze on other business people. That that is what happens when you disrupt, but you don't have to be such a dick about it. <laughs> I, yeah, no, like- I, I totally agree. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, and, you know, Lyft, you know, I mean, when, whenever if I'm traveling and I need a, a ride somewhere, you know, uh, if I have the option, I will always choose Lyft over Uber. Um, you know, I've, I've had much better experiences with Lyft uh, than than with Uber. Um, and, you know, I think they're from from everything I've seen, at least, you know, I mean, for all I know, they may be doing some similar things in the background uh, to what Uber is doing. I certainly hope not. Um, but, you know, we certainly have not seen any reports of the kind of behavior from Lyft that we've seen from from Uber, um, you know, and Uber's you know company leadership, their corporate leadership is, just you know, they're terrible. Um, so, you know, I, I just refuse to patronize them whenever possible. 
Well, and, that's but, awesome. They, they're never going to sponsor our podcast. Probably not. Um, but, um, you know, the one of the other things that I wrote in that article and then I had a follow up a couple of days later, uh, you know, is uh, at, at the end of it, you know, I, I, I kind of posed the question, you know, of, you know, Volvo, you know, is a company that, you know, most people have only good things to say about the company, uh, you know, and about them as a company. I mean, you know, they've been, a, you know, for almost their entire history, you know, they've been huge proponents of improving vehicle safety. You know, they've they've had all kinds of safety innovations, you know, in terms of seat belts and body structures and and their seats and all kinds of things in their vehicles. And uh, the overall, you know, everybody, you know, most people think very highly of Volvo. And, you know, having this partnership with with Uber, you know, I had to wonder, you know, it's like, why, you know, why aren't they speaking out? Why aren't they saying more about this, you know, or, or kind of pushing uh, um, Uber, you know, to behave a little better on this? And so I actually reached out to Volvo and got a comment from them. Basically, what I was told by uh, by a Volvo spokesman uh, was that as far as the testing of these vehicles goes that's entirely in uber's ballpark essentially all volvo is doing for this partner this partnership quote-unquote partnership they have with uber is supplying the vehicles and, and helping them with some of the vehicle engineering um but any testing and development of the autonomous systems on those vehicles is entirely in Uber's hands. And Volvo is not at all involved in that. They actually have their own separate autonomous vehicle development program uh, that they have going. They have a joint venture with AutoLeave, a Swedish supplier of um, various safety systems, active safety systems and seat belts and, and other components um, that they're developing their own autonomous systems for their vehicles. Uh, so they're not actually involved in this, which is you know why they haven't you know really spoken up at all uh, about uh, about this or pushed Uber towards you know trying to behave better in San Francisco. I wonder if they actually. Well, I'm sure they care a little bit just because they're skilled by association. But yeah, kind of like you know, like you you guys got the cars, you do whatever, you help us refine our software, and uh, we don't. We don't want to be involved beyond that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, they're, they're not even, you know, Volvo's not even involved with the software development that Uber's doing. I mean, that's completely in Uber's hands. They have, Volvo has their own um, program entirely, you know, and they're, they're uh, early in 2017, they're going to be launching their drive me test program in Sweden. And then uh, later in the year, uh, spreading it to uh, the UK and, and China as well uh, with their own fleet of uh, semi-autonomous XC90s. Um, so that's that's their program, which is completely separate from what's going on with Uber. Basically, all that all they've really done with Uber is they've sold them a bunch of XC90s and they're you know, they're going to work with them you know, to uh, develop a, a bespoke uh, body, you know, to go on their platform that Uber, you know, will then buy vehicles from, from Volvo. But, you know, once Uber buys the vehicles, then, you know, Uber, uh, Volvo doesn't really have any involvement beyond that point. Well, and then, um, and then something similar is going on, you know, kind of a segue. Uh, there's actually, it's actually quite exactly similar to, going. <laughs> to, uh, to what uh, is going on with Fiat Chrysler and Google, or should I say Waymo? Yeah, so Waymo, uh, the the what I took from this was that uh, Google had done enough development work that this is is now ready. Um, they're they're done with the hard engineering part. They're ready to market 
the product now because uh, it looks mm. like the, the no, statement not says, really. <laughs> oh, okay, because the statement makes it sound like okay, now we're ready to build a business because we built the cars. Yeah, I mean they they they're they're moving towards commercialization, but they're still a ways away from that. Um, so uh, you know what. Uh, last week, um, you know, Waymo, you know, they, they made the announcement and it's been rumored that this is going to happen for some time now. They made the announcement that um, until now, the Google self-driving car program has been part of the uh, Google X labs uh, program at Google. Uh, so, you know, it was, you know, it was part of their, their R&D efforts. And what they've done now is they've spun it off into a separate uh, company um, much like uh, Google Fiber and Nest and some of the other uh, companies that are part of that come under the uh, umbrella of Alphabet Incorporated, which is the holding company that Google reorganized itself into last year. Um, and that new company is called Waymo, and they're focusing on you know commercializing self-driving technology. Um, you know, and based on what they've said so far and conversations I've had with people from Google slash Waymo uh, in recent months, you, you know, what they, what they want to do is uh, develop um, the uh, uh, a package of sensors and actuators and the control software and, and processing uh, for self-driving cars and sell that to car makers. Um, and then, Possibly also, you know, they're also looking at other business models, you know, like potentially providing ride hailing platform, um, you know, the software platform for ride hailing and and doing some other things, uh, you know, that are uh, related to uh, the whole self-driving cars. But, you know, they're they're not at this time looking at actually building Google cars. You know, they, they want to uh, provide their system to other manufacturers. Right. So, I mean, that sounds that squares with what I was saying was like, OK, they've done enough development work. We're not going to build that funky little marshmallow. Um, they're going to they're going to try to become an OEM. And that was sort of like what we had more of a tier one supplier. OK. Right. I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> but that's that's kind of what we had speculated when when it first came up, you know, before we even launched the podcast, when we had talked to, at one point or another, uh, we were saying, like, it makes way more sense for them to, uh, you know, play on their strength. And clearly the strength of automakers is building cars. Um, they already work with a lot of suppliers for the technology that goes in them. So, you know, one of Google's great strengths is building software, building digital platforms and, uh, you know, uh, solving those kind of issues. So the, the two almost seem like, you know, chocolate and peanut butter. They seem like they're, they're good to go together. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, what, uh, in going back several years now, you know, um, Google has approached, uh, many of the big automakers, you know, about using their software and their system in their vehicles. Um, you know, and, but, the way they did it at the time, and this is before John Kraftcheck came on board as the CEO of the, the of Waymo and, and the self-driving car program, uh, you know, they they took uh, a very they had a very different attitude when they went to the car makers. You know, they basically said, you know, just, you know, bring us your cars and we'll we'll put our stuff on there and you don't need to worry about what's in there, um, which, you know, that was not an approach that was particularly amenable to any of the manufacturers who knew that ultimately they were going to be responsible for whatever went on those vehicles. You know, so they weren't, they weren't prepared to take this kind of black box approach that Google was offering. Uh, you know, basically there was the attitude 
from Google, you know, the typical Silicon Valley attitude that, you know, we're smarter than you guys are, you know, just trust us, you know, and you know, that, that wasn't going to fly. Right. Um, so, you know, I think with, with John, uh, craft in charge there now, you know, I've known John for, for a number of years, you know, going back to his days, you know, even before he was CEO at Hyundai, um, it, you know, he's, he's a very smart guy. He's been in the auto industry for a long time. And I think he brought a more realistic approach to, um, you know, to how Google uh, needs to deal with car makers in order to get their stuff in there. And I, I would not be surprised, you know, if within the next, you know, six to nine months, you know, and probably sooner than that, that we start to get the first announcements of uh, some production programs from Google. They're probably still going to be, you know, several years out, you know, probably not, you know, until the early 2020s um, before they actually hit the road. But we'll probably start to, you know, to hear of some more partnerships that go beyond um, the Fiat Chrysler partnership that was announced last May. Uh, and, you know, we saw the first vehicles today uh, from that. You know, that partnership was very limited. Um, basically, all that, um, you know, Fiat Chrysler's uh, part in that partnership was much like Volvo's part in the um, the Uber uh, program, where essentially they were just supplying a fleet of uh, Pacifica hybrid minivans. And then they worked with the Google engineers to integrate their sensing system and, and their processors and everything into the, the Pacificas. Uh, and then once those vehicles are built, which is now that process has now been completed, um, Waymo engineers are now taking over that project and they're doing all the development of the, of the system. Um, you know, Fiat Chrysler is no longer directly involved in any of that development work. Well, maybe though, uh, you know, looking out a, a couple of years from now, um, Waymo will be able to just buy the car business from Fiat Chrysler. <laughs> That's an <laughs> I wouldn't rule out that possibility. No, I mean, you look at the Chrysler website, there's like three products on it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you got to look at all the brands. I mean, there's more than that. You know, I mean, the, uh, the Chrysler brand, yeah, there's only three. Yeah. Uh, but right. and, um, but if the you Dodge look at brand, Ram, doesn't have too many either. Yeah. But, you know, Dodge and Ram and, and Fiat and Alfa Romeo and, you know, you add, all, add them all up and it's a little bit more than that. But yeah, it's it's pretty sparse over there. Uh, oh, and, and Jeep. I mean, Jeep is actually probably the, the biggest brand, you know, in terms of you know, having oh, the yeah. most models there. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, FCA's market cap uh, is not particularly great. What's going on? I mean, it's a complete left turn for the podcast, but like, what the hell is going on over there? Like the only thing they're doing, it seems to be, is like pumping money into Jeep. Fiat's not doing well in the, in the U.S. Uh, they haven't refreshed any of their other products um i it doesn't look as good for them as it had you know two and a half years ago like it's like what are they doing um <laughs> you know it <laughs> their their cars their car their cars have struggled i mean but you know everybody's cars are well, struggling they're old but, and the, well i guess too, well actually like, you know the the dart and the chrysler 200 you know dodge dart chrysler 200 you know are only a couple of years old right those uh, but they yeah. they they did not have a, a great start in the marketplace. You know, they haven't done, they haven't done exceptionally well. Um, so, you know, it's uh, basically the only brands that have really had a, 
you know, strong take up, you know, a strong uh, market are the Ram trucks, the Ram pickup trucks and the Jeeps. Um, everything else, you know, their Fiat, you know, has struggled to get off the ground in the U.S. Um, we'll see what happens with Alfa Romeo uh, in 2017 as they get the Julia going. Um, you know, that's that's their first closer to a mainstream product, you know, after uh, launching with the, uh, the 4C. Yeah, but I mean, um, so that just seems so dumb because you're going to relaunch Alfa Romeo like you you're starting off behind the eight ball when you're relaunching a, a brand in the U.S. that hasn't been here since what, 1992. Uh, well, I think I think what they're trying to do there is, you know, if you look at the, the market as a whole, uh, you know, overall um, sales volumes uh, in North America and, and most of the other mature markets in Western Europe uh, and Japan you know, are pretty much, you know, plateauing. They're not, we're not likely to see any significant growth. I mean, our forecast at, at Navigant, you know, over the next 10 years is like less than half, you know, about half a percent annual growth rate at best. Uh, so basically you're looking at a flat market, you know, uh, overall, you know, but what we're seeing is, is a shift in the marketplace going more up market. So the, you know, premium brands are where there's actually some more significant growth. Um, and so, you know, there's a potential there if, if they can get a good launch with the, uh, with the Julia and the Stelvio, um, what, you know, and they can, they can start to chip away and, and get some of that premium brand, um, market, you know, market share, you know, then there's a lot higher margins in those vehicles than there are, you know, in say a Chrysler or Dodge car. Uh, so that I think I think that's what they're trying to do, because, you know, one of the issues that FCA has is they've got a lot of debt um, and they need to pay down that debt. So they're trying to focus their attention on the higher margin products. So Jeep, uh, Ram and Alfa Romeo, you know, are all higher margin products. Uh, so if they if sell they can, any, <laughs> well, yeah, if they, if they well, I mean, Jeep, Jeep, Jeep has Ram, no problem. Jeep, yeah, Jeep and Ram are doing well. Um, you know, the Chrysler Pacifica is off to, off to a good start, you know, and that's also another higher margin product, you know, and if alpha, if they can gain any, if they can get gain a foothold with alpha, there's certainly some potential for some improved cash flow from that. So that'll help. Um, on the other hand, they also have to invest a lot, you know, to, to gain that. So, you know, the, the actual benefits of that might still be several years out, but longer term, uh, you know, they're. I think I think that's what their strategy is. That seems to be what their strategy is. Uh, you know, and then in the meantime, uh, you know, they're they're just kind of kind of muddling along. You know, uh, it, it's you know, seems a little unclear right now, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, they sure they they've seemed to they seem to be poised a couple of years ago. And now it, it just seems like they're a little bit unfocused and they just they've they've taken product away from you know, brands that, you know, really need it. Like you would think that Dodge would be the volume brand and there's really nothing there. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the, again, you know, the problem there is they're, they're the whole market for cars oh, as yeah, opposed to utilities, sure. yeah. you know, is struggling, you know, I mean, every, every brand, oh, almost every brand, you know, Honda seems to be kind of the exception to that. Um, and to a lesser degree, Toyota, but even Toyota, you know, has seen sales of some of their, their, you know, the Camry and, and the Corolla uh, start to slide in the past year. So, you know, every other car maker is seeing 
sales of cars slide in favor of utilities. You know, so certainly FCA has got that covered with Jeep. Uh, but yeah, you know, Jeep and Ram, yeah. You know, the, sure. the the only the only car that you know is getting any any significant sales at the only cars at, at Dodge that are getting any sales are the Charger and the Challenger. And Which are you know, those are those ancient. are getting old. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're they're good cars, but yeah, they're they're old, and I, I guess th- that's okay uh, in a, in a certain way. I mean, it, it is disappointing that the the Dart kind of stiffed. I mean, they they did that to themselves. Um, you know, and I can understand the the trepidation with limited resources to actually go take another bite at that, you know, C segment Apple. Like that's it's expensive, and the return isn't necessarily there in in such a crowded yet shrinking field. So, but it seems like everybody else has refreshed their C segment cars. Not you know, not too re- uh, not too long ago. So they're kind of going to miss out if they just kill the dart and don't replace it but i know there's also that talk about um trying to partner yeah, up they, with someone so. yeah they want to partner with somebody to uh to get a car to replace that but you know we'll see if that's, see if they get anywhere a, with that, that yeah i mean that's not a terrible plan it's we get so emotional about it but at the end of the day it's it's business so if they can sort of make some cold calculated moves and you know cozy up with honda or uh, not honda uh mazda or some yeah. some other you know automaker that's small and needs a foothold that they could do all right and, and make, and make some really good cars. Yeah, uh, definitely. I'd, you know, I'd be curious to see how they do with them. I mean, they're already served. They've got the alpha, um, the, the, or the Fiat 124. So, I mean, they've already opened the door. A little. Yeah. They've we'll got see. a relationship with Mazda there. So that's, that's a start. Yeah. We'll see but if they it could goes mess any it up. further. I don't yeah. want them to mess it up. <laughs> don't mess it up. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, the last topic we wanted to talk about was the uh, the new cars could be uh, talking to each other uh, as soon as 2020. So I this I saw this come out the other day too, where uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration wants to mandate vehicle to vehicle communications uh, very soon. So this almost seems like sort of a car based uh, air traffic control. Um, kind of. Uh, so what vehicle to vehicle communications uh, technology is based on something called um, dedicated short range communications, DSRC, which is actually a variant of Wi-Fi. Yes, uh, I, I should say, too, um, this begins the acronym segment of yes. this po- <laughs> of the podcast. <laughs> there might be a few. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, so they're, they're the the broader um term that's used you know, is v, v to x communications vehicle to external so that that includes vehicle to vehicle vehicle to pedestrian vehicle to infrastructure vehicle to cyclist and so on and until now until recently all of these have been based on this dsrc technologies it's a it's a wi-fi variant and you know over the last uh, eight or nine years they've developed um Actually, even longer than that, they've developed uh, standard uh, messaging protocols that um, all the car makers are using. They've worked, you know, with SAE and other standards organizations to um, develop a standard set of messages. And the idea is to extend um, the situational awareness for the driver uh, beyond their line of sight. Uh, so, you know, the messages, uh, the 
messages can be sent back and forth between vehicles and traffic signals and whatever else uh, up to about uh, four to 500 meters, you know, so about a thousand feet or so. Uh, so for example, um, you know, if a car, you know, two or three cars down the road, uh, you know, if the driver suddenly hits the brakes, um, you know, it'll send out a, a message, you know, it'll blast out a message to all the other cars in the area, you know, emergency braking activated, um, you know, so you'll get an, your car will get an alert in the dashboard, you know, and before, you know, before you can see that car or see, you know, see the cars in between you, um, you know, have their brake lights come on, you can respond, uh, you know, before, before you can see something. Similarly, uh, if you're approaching a blind intersection, you know, in, in the city, um, you know, cars coming from the from the other direction, you know, be around the corner of a building and you can't see it, you know, uh, you'll get an alert that there's a car approaching the intersection that you're also approaching. So what it's doing is it's sending out 10 times a second. It's sending out messages about um, your position, trajectory, speed uh, and various other bits of information, short messages um, that give that can give you alerts about what's going on. So this is like kind of like the key for normal cars coexisting mm -hmm. with uh autonomous cars coexisting with other idiot drivers yes so. that's, that's one that's one one aspect of it so yeah um yeah and you know if for example you know earlier this year you know we had the the accident where the tesla driver in florida uh using autopilot uh you know the system, the sensors on the car were not able to detect a truck turning left across the car's path uh, because of challenging lighting conditions. If you'd had V to V communications um, between the between the truck and that and that Tesla, um, it could have been another layer of information that the vehicle could have used to say, "Oh, there's a car, there's a truck turning in front of me. I'm going to hit the brakes instead of just." plowing right under it um similarly when we had the 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 uh, low speed collision in uh mountain view california between one of google's self-driving prototypes and a local transit bus uh you know where the the, the self-driving car drove into the side of the bus you know assuming that the bus was going to stop uh when it had to change lanes and it didn't you know the the v to v could be used to signal intent between the vehicles you know so it could have signaled to the self-driving car that the driver of the bus was not slowing down, was not applying the brakes. And, you know, so the self-driving car could have stopped before it ran into the side of the bus. So there's all kinds of information like this, you know, it, it, it extends the, the capabilities uh, beyond, you know, beyond what the sensors can see because this, you know, the sensors on an autonomous car uh, or even, you know, a conventional car with driver assist systems, you know, it's, it's like your eyes, you know, you can't see through other objects, you know, unless, you know, if they're not transparent. Um, so you can only see what's within your line of sight and to see beyond that or to, to get intent, you, you need other information. And so that's where uh, V2V comes in. And, you know, another way where it can help because it's a variation of Wi-Fi um, phones that have Wi-Fi in them can also broadcast DSRC messages. Uh, so, you know, for pedestrians, if you're, you know, if you're walking out into the street from between a couple of cars parked on the side of the road um, and, you know, you've got a phone in your pocket that's broadcasting DSRC messages, drivers, you know, coming down the street will get an alert that there's a pedestrian, you know, approaching. And so, you know, hopefully the, you know, the driver of that vehicle, uh, if it's human driven, you know, will slow down and stop. Um, or, you know, if it's an autonomous vehicle, it'll slow down and stop before it hits that pedestrian. 
This all, so I had a creative writing exercise that I started uh, just on a whim. Um, like at a certain point, we're we're going to have to come to grips with the fact that all this stuff is great and it works and it's going to to make life harmonious, shall we say. Um, but for those well, of us that's, who, that's the theory anyway. Right. For, but for those of us who aren't like unless we're compelled to upgrade, we, you know, there are going to be some of us who just won't. Uh, and so if you have a car that doesn't put out these signals, are, are we going to at some point like not be able to to work on the roads with these other vehicles? Or I mean, I know that they're going to have the other kind of sensing packages, which will allow them to at least detect and avoid. But it's still like at a certain point, you're then relying on other cars to, to be safe on the road. And that seems like nonsense. Um, well, um, there's a couple things there. I mean, my dystopian one, future. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the future is absolutely dystopian. There's no question about that. I mean, you know, we're, we're all doomed. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, okay. that, I think, you know, we can, uh, especially, uh, you know, after today, uh, you know, with the electoral college, yeah. I, th I think we can safely say that we're all doomed. Um, <laughs> but uh, setting that aside for the moment, um, you know, it's there will, you know, for many, many years to come, there will be a lot of cars on the road that don't have you know any of this sort of communication hardware built in, uh, you know, and that's that's a given, you know, what what we're doing, though, is, you know, with the, the regulation that was published by uh, NHTSA last week, um, you know, and there's there's now a 90 day comment period. And, you know, assuming that the whole thing doesn't get derailed. Um, you know, by the new administration, which is probably unlikely because there's general industry agreement, you know, that the regulation was put together, you know, with a lot of input from industry and the auto industry as a whole generally supports the regulation. So it seems that uh, as regulations go, this one is unlikely or is less likely to, um, you know, be a problem, be seen as a problem. Um, but uh, you know, if, if everything goes forward as planned, you know, about a year from now, the regulation will be finalized. Uh, and then uh, two years after that. So the, this is the timeline two years after that. So around um, the end of 2019, uh, beginning of 2020, uh, the phase in period will start um, for new vehicles. So we're not, you know, they're not, there's no plans to ever mandate this for existing vehicles, but, you know, over time, you know, most existing vehicles eventually get scrapped out and they will eventually be replaced. But starting in 2020, um, and, and in 20 model in 2020, half of all new cars will have to be equipped with V to V, uh, transmitters the following year, 75% and the third year, uh, hundred percent of new cars. So, you know, as those cars replace older cars that are, you know, eventually, you know, scra uh, scrapped out of the, the car fleet, um, eventually, you know, the majority of new cars will, will be equipped. And, you know, by my estimates, you know, in the, uh, uh, the research report that uh, we're about to publish from from my company, Navigant Research, on connected vehicles, um, you know, by uh, by 2025, you know, we'll have uh, oh uh, somewhere around um, 60 million cars on the road uh, globally uh, with V to V communications, you know, and that number will grow pretty rapidly from there, you know, as all new vehicles are equipped. And then in addition to that. 
uh, you know, there's a number of companies that are working on aftermarket solutions and retrofit solutions, you know, to add that capability to existing vehicles for drivers that want to have that have those kinds of alerts available to them. Yeah. Uh, and so that's I mean, uh, my story was about um, somebody trying to pay with a five dollar bill because everything's gone to like, you know, pay with your phone or like Venmo or whatever. And it's like, you know, you can't you can't. What's a, right, what's a five dollar bill that here? Um, <laughs> so anyway, I I just I like I got into work one day and I just wrote down a bunch of notes and that was it. So that's that. <laughs> um, so please, nobody steal my idea until I have a chance to write it and get it like in the New Yorker and make a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of publicity because you won't make any money. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, it's going to happen. And like, I honestly think that it is a, a, a big key to answering the question about how we're actually going to get along with all of this, this new technology, because the new technology is coming. Um, the the bluest blue sky predictions are like, you know, well, we should be having autonomous cars now, um, which is ridiculous. Uh, but like they're going to get there and all indicators point to. You know they're going to get there pretty quick in in certain places like here where it snows probably not so much but you know eventually yeah they're they're going to get there as well so um just figuring out how we can all get along on the roads is is good and, and v2v seems like a, a thing so at the end of the day we're going to get a new federal motor vehicle safety standard that we can uh, plow through and that they can amend uh as as we go so if you're as excited about federal motor vehicle safety standards as i can be occasionally it's uh it's good to know. I mean, FMVSS 150. I, yeah. I, I mean, I read all of 108, um, which was pretty interesting, actually. Like, I, there's stuff in there that you just. Which one is 108 that? 108 is the original FMVSS, I believe. Okay. Um, well, I guess it's not the original one, but it was like, it was from a while ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it was interesting. I'm pretty sure it's 108. I could be wrong on the number. I know 105 was the uh, brake systems um standard uh, and i know that only because i used to work now, on now brake I'm systems Google as an engineer um <laughs> fmvss 108 um it might be lighting oh, it, might, it might have okay. to do with lighting that might be why i was reading it um so google is gonna be cranky and i'll wait for it to pull it up but in the meantime we did get some questions or a question yes we did oh uh, well, actually we got two questions. two questions from uh from jim okay, so two questions from uh, the same the guy yes so the first one is about the VW diesel scandal. Uh, the basic story has been retold many times that the engine control software could recognize that the vehicle was in test mode. So it would shift the engine to run in a cleaner, but uh, maybe less powerful or efficient manner. Uh, and what Jim's wondering is uh, what engine parameters did the system change to, uh, to accomplish the, the cheat? Um, so uh, it, First of all, it, it doesn't really adjust uh, engine timing or compression ratio or any of that, as, as Jim is asking. Um, the the way these cars, these these modern diesels worked, uh, these Volkswagen diesels, um, they have uh, two main um, emission control systems on there that are required to meet uh, current emission standards. One is the particulate filter that's used um, to get rid of the soot and smoke that uh, older diesels always make. And then the other part is the NOx reduction system. And um, over the past decade or so, there's been two basic strategies that have been used by car makers um, to reduce, uh, excuse me, nitrogen oxide emissions uh, from diesel engines. One is a so-called SCR system, selective catalytic reduction. And so if you've driven most of the diesel, modern diesels that are on the road today, um, 
they have um they, when you buy the gas tank when you fill it up or i'm sorry the fuel the fuel filler uh <laughs> when you when you fill it with diesel um there's also a second um uh, port in there where about every 10,000 10 to 15,000 miles or so you have to fill it up with uh a urea solution uh and what that does is uh in uh, there's a urea injection system in the exhaust and when that gets injected into the exhaust stream uh, the urea uh, as it uh, hits the hot exhaust gases it decomposes into uh, into ammonia and that uh, reacts uh, with a catalyst uh, that's in the exhaust system uh, to basically convert the NOx um, into nitrogen and water um, so uh, it, it turns it into into harmless gases. Um, so that's that's the strategy that's been used for by most automakers over the last uh, seven so, or eight years. Yeah, and the, do they use, that's a that's expensive. Um, but mm -hmm. is that used together with the uh, the the particulate filter as well? Or okay. yeah, so yeah, so it's dealing with two separate things. The particulate filter deals with the soot, and the SCR deals with the the NOx. So that's. That's what most auto automakers have done. What Volkswagen did on their um, four-cylinder uh, diesel engines is they went with a, a different strategy. They used something called a lean NOx trap. And uh, the NOx trap, uh, what it does is um, when uh, for the diesel engines, in order to get the, the best uh, fuel economy and performance, uh, what they were doing is most of the time the engines were running somewhat lean. Uh, so they didn't. They had a fairly lean uh, air fuel which mixture. Drives drives uh, NOx up, which drives NOx emissions up because it, what it does is it raises the combustion temperature, and when the combustion temperature in the engine gets above about 600 degrees C, that's where it starts to produce more NOx. So if you keep the combustion temperature down, it makes less NOx. Running lean, you get better fuel efficiency and performance, but the NOx emissions go up. So. Uh, what happens is the NOx trap actually absorbs or what it's supposed to do is absorb some of the NOx uh, absorb most of the NOx from the exhaust stream as the exhaust passes through the trap. And then every few hundred miles, the engine is supposed to change uh, to a slightly richer fuel mixture, um, which causes a, a different reaction within the NOx trap. You know, so there's catalysts in there and it can, it converts the trapped NOx, um, with um, you get some extra unburned hydrocarbons uh, when you run rich with the uh, with the fuel mixture and that reacts and it causes the NOx to be converted into nitrogen, water and CO2. Um, so that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, but of course, when you do that, because you're running a little more rich, you're using more fuel, your, your uh, mileage goes down and also your performance is degraded a bit. What Volkswagen did was. Um, when it detect when the system detected that the car was running an emissions test, uh, basically, you know, when the engine was running and it was going through various cycles and the, the front wheels were, were turning uh, on the dynamometer, but the rear wheels were not turning, um, then it said, oh, I must be running an emissions test and it would run rich all the time. And as a result, uh, or it would run rich more frequently, let's put it that way. And so. Because of that, it was uh, keeping the keeping the NOx trap from getting saturated. And um, so the NOx emissions were much lower than they otherwise would be when you're out on the real world and all four wheels were turning. Then it would go to a much lower frequency of 
um, of running rich, uh, which gave you better fuel economy and better performance. Um, but the NOx trap would get saturated with NOx and couldn't absorb any more NOx. And so when it was when the NOx trap was full, the NOx would just flow right out the, the tailpipe. That's where the problem lied. And so all of this was done in software. There was no hardware defeat device, you know, which it always irritates me when I hear um, people refer to this as, as Volkswagen using a defeat device because there's no actual device. It's all just changes in software. Uh, and so that's what was happening. They were just running it lean more of the time um, and letting the, the Knox trap get saturated with Knox and just letting the Knox flow at the tailpipe. Nice guys. Because everybody was... Yeah. Um curious how Volkswagen was able to meet the emissions targets without uh, using urea injection or, you know, that other expensive kind of stuff. It kept the price of VW diesels lower because they had less you know, technology to hang off the, the engine. Um, and Right. The, the Knox trap solution was less expensive than the urea injection and other manufacturers tried to do the same thing and they could never they could never um, meet the emission standards with that approach. Uh, you know, GM tried it when they were developing the, the original, the first generation cruise diesel back in 2012, 2013, they tested both Knox traps and uh, urea injection, and they found they couldn't meet emissions with the Knox trap and ended up using urea injection. Um, Honda tried to do it and couldn't meet stand the standards. Uh, Mazda tried to do it. I mean, that's why that's part of why Mazda's diesels have been delayed, delayed so long um, is because they tried to do it with an ox trap and realized that they could never meet the emission standards that way. Uh, so when they launched the CX-5 diesel uh, in 2017, it's going to have a urea injection. So how system. much of an open secret was this in the industry then? Because uh, you're everybody who's trying to launch diesels, they're going to buy one of the cars, right. And, and go through it and test it. You know, that's what automakers do. They buy each other's products and take them apart. You know, it's not clear how, you know, who had actually figured out what was going on because, you know, uh, it's not clear how, you know, how much actual real world emissions testing they did with these, you know, I think, you know, a lot of the testing they probably did, you know, they, when they bought VW vehicles and benchmarked them, they were probably doing the tests, you know, the same way the EPA does. And of course, you know, if they were, uh, if they were testing them in the lab, um, they would have gotten the same results that the EPA was getting, you know, and unless they actually hooked up uh, the equipment to test them on the road, they wouldn't have realized that there was a problem. Well, and I'm sure that, because I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure that if they had realized it, somebody would have reported it to, uh, to EPA a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, that's unfair advantage. And Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure that the, now the test procedures have changed to uh, catch these. Yeah, absolutely. They, yeah, especially for diesels, you know, um, EPA, you know, for any new diesel vehicle that's coming to market now, EPA is actually doing um, real, you know, road testing of the vehicles in addition to the lab testing uh, before they will grant certification for those. And in fact, uh, starting in 2017 in Europe, um, they're in, in your, the, uh, European union is switching from the, um, what they call the NEDC drive cycle, the new European drive cycle, um, that they've been using since the late 1990s <laughs> that's, that's for emissions kind, and kind fuel economy. New European driving cycle. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, 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 uh, switching away from the NEDC cycle to, uh, something called the, uh, the new world light duty test protocol. Uh, which is being used in a, in a number of regions around the world. Um, 
is and they're phasing that in from 2017 and that's going to include uh real world emissions testing for all new vehicles um starting you know they're phasing that in starting in 17 and by I think 2019 or 2020, all new vehicles that are certified will have to go through real world emissions testing, regardless of what uh, whether they run on gasoline or diesel. Yeah. So thanks, guys. That's OK. I mean, I honestly um, the emissions controls are a good thing and it makes me chafe anytime I hear about people replacing stuff with test pipes and you know getting the bypasses and things like that. Like, you know, it's just our rolling yeah, coal. Yeah. Uh, so what was the other part of the question or the other question that he asked? The, the, yeah. The other question that uh, Jim had was about uh, internal combustion engines being electrified more and more. Um, you know, we're seeing things like electric power steering, um, electric superchargers and water pumps and AC compressors. Uh, and uh, he thinks this is done to improve fuel economy. How's this accomplished? In other words, is this, if the same amount of work like power steering assist is required, why is electric power steering more fuel efficient than hydraulic? And the, the difference comes down to um, demand, you know, with a hydraulic, you know, he's right. You know, the same amount of work is required when you actually need the assist. The difference is that if you have uh, a hydraulic uh, power, a hydraulic steering pump, for example, that's being driven off the engine, it's driven off the engine continuously. Yeah. So there's a constant load on the engine that's that's drawing some of the power and using some of the energy that, you know, that's produced when you burn the fuel um, with an electric system. Uh, it's only using energy when it's actually needed. So when you're driving straight down the road, you know, down a straight flat road and there, you know, you're not turning the steering wheel, there's no energy being used for the electric power steering. Um, similarly, you know, um, you know, the, the first applications we've got in Europe of uh, an electric turbo uh, this year was launched in Europe on the um, Audi SQ7. Uh, next year, 2017, Mercedes is launching some engines with electric turbos, and we're going to see more and more of those uh, in the coming years. We're projecting about uh, six million a year uh, by the mid 2020s. But the the electric turbo um, though yeah. is like that's a different thing. That's more like an end run around uh, lag, right? Because the the thing that drives the turbo is the pressure drop. <laughs> Um, um, yeah, but parts partially, you know, so it's partially about partially about the lag, um, but also, um, you know, again, more on demand because it, the responsiveness is better. Um, you know, what happens is, you know, when the driver hits the accelerator, you get that more immediate responsiveness and it can, um, they're, they they may not hit go as deep into the accelerators they might have otherwise. And so overall fuel consumption is reduced. And, you know, you also you can combine it with other things like, for example, cylinder deactivation. You know, if you've got a V6 engine that's running on three cylinders and you've also got an electric turbo on there, um, you know, when you start climbing a, a mild grade, you know, normally without that turbo, um, the engine might switch back to using all six cylinders. Um, and therefore use more fuel with an electric turbo, you know, what can happen is even without the driver, you know, hitting, going harder on the accelerator, you know, if you're using cruise control or something, um, the, the powertrain controller can spin up the turbo a little bit, give you a little bit of boost, keep it running on three cylinders. And the combination of the electric turbo pumping more engine into those three running cylinders uh, can give you the power you need to maintain your speed going up that grade 
um, while still using less fuel overall than if you were running on all six cylinders. So there's there's, com- there's all kinds of things like that that you know give you incrementally better fuel economy when you start to add them all up. Yeah, I mean, and so some of the uh, electric systems too are better than others, which has been interesting to watch. The um, electric power steering for certain. Uh, some of some of the first systems were just really numb and not that satisfying yeah. to to use and that's because of the way they're designed there's several different ways to to pull it off um and even like so the systems that are in Cadillacs they actually couple it to the steering gear with a belt and there's a little bit of give in that belt and that's what gives you some of that the sort of natural feeling back versus um other systems where it's like basically you are steering through the motor the electric uh, assist motor so it's it's just much more insulated um so we're getting there with electric power steering that feels better and you know we went through this too with hydraulic power steering uh when we actually went to predominantly power steering versus manual rack and pinion or, or manual um recirculating ball recirculating yeah. ball um you know nobody likes the steering feel of of power st- hydraulic power steering back then because it was so light uh so there's you know there's some fine tuning it's getting better yeah, the the, en- the engineers are getting used to it. They're figuring out how to do it. Yeah, you know, um, and you know, certainly with with electric power steering, you know, that enables things like, uh, for example, um, uh, you know, drift um, drift compensation. You know, so if you're driving down a road, you know, and there's a crosswind, um, or you know, there's a, a, a heavy crown to the road, you know, that where your car might naturally tend to drift towards one side or the other. Um, you know, a lot of cars now have uh, automatic drift compensation so that, you know, if you've got the steering wheel pointed straight ahead and, you know, the stability control sensors recognize, you know, they recognize a, a little bit of, um, you know, yaw rate uh, or, um, ex- you know, lateral acceleration, you know, that's caused by, you know, a crown or a crosswind or something like that. You know, it can actually use the um, the electric power steering to essentially give you that steering correction that you would otherwise have to do manually, you know, to basically keep you on the straight and narrow, um, you know, while you just hold the steering wheel straight ahead. Nobody else has been able to keep me on the straight and narrow. I don't want my car to do it. <laughs> well, uh, but yeah, no, it's, yeah. in theory, um, and least. it does, it'll work together with the other sensors too. Even like lane, lane keeping assists, uh, systems, you know, they won't have, some of them work with, by firing the brakes on one side to sort of turn the car, like, like you would like a boat. <laughs> um, you know, versus uh, you know, actually getting the steering involved, and you just tweak the valve a little bit one way or the other, and it, or or the you know tweak the the rack a little bit one way or the other, and it'll it'll steer. So it, it it's it's good because it's not that constant parasitic drag, um, and it's yeah. it's lighter, and you know that's less stuff. Yeah, and you know that that's you know things like electric water pumps and electric oil pumps. Um, you know those are going to come you know in the in the next several years as we start to see um some vehicle more vehicles equipped with 48 volt electrical systems one of you know right now you know the electric power steering we can manage with 12 volt electrical systems but um we need to go to higher voltages to get the electrical power we need in order to do things like electric cooling pumps and and oil pumps um once we get 48 volt systems on more vehicles they'll start to adopt uh some of those electric electric pumps so instead of having you know this big serpentine belt you know, driving all these accessories on the front of the engine continuously and, you know, sucking up power from the engine. Um, you know, you'll just have the one belt that drives the uh, the 48 volt alternator 
Um, and then, you know, everything else will be electrically driven only when and it's those needed. those motors are going to be smaller uh, yeah. because they can be smaller yep. than 48 volts because of Ohm's law. Hooray. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, one, one other thing, too, about the electric turbos is it also uh, really aids packaging. You know, when you've got an exhaust-driven turbocharger, you know, figuring out how to do the plumbing of getting the exhaust gases into the turbocharger, you know, and then getting the other side of the turbo you know, to feed through an intercooler and into the intake side of the engine on the, you know, on the opposite side, you know, that gets really complicated and adds a lot of weight, um, you know, and, you know, packaging is just a, a royal pain under the hood, um, you know, with an electric turbo. Now, all of a sudden you don't have to deal with, you know, figuring out how you're going to route the exhaust gases into that thing. You've only got the compressor side and an electric motor driving it. And so it makes it a lot easier to package it all under the hood. I'll buy that. I'll buy that. And I think with that, we've bought another podcast. So, uh, All right. yeah, it's uh, it's a Christmas episode because I don't know if we're going to I don't know if we're going to make it to another episode later this week um, before the holiday. So uh, we may. But if we don't, maybe yeah. we'll see if we don't, um, you know, we'll catch everybody uh, later. But certainly keep the uh, the questions rolling in. It's wheelbearingscast at Gmail dot com. We are wheelbearings, no vowels uh, on Twitter. We have Facebook um which our friend dan is managing uh let's see where else are we we're we're all over the place we're kind of we're, we're working on it yep you go to wheelbearings.media uh, is the site uh, where you can oh, find yeah. all the links to subscribe the to the show site. we're on uh, itunes yeah um uh, itunes um google play uh music um uh, tune in oh, or I gotta, else, I, uh, Pocket Casts, what, whatever podcatcher yeah, you want to use. I looked for us in Stitcher the other day and we're not there. So, no, we're we're not in Stitcher. You actually have to submit to Stitcher, and then they Stitcher's kind of funky. Uh, we'll have to take a look at what the deal is there. Um, you know, they they do things a little differently okay. there. Um, we'll see if we can maybe get in there, but uh, uh, we'll we'll work on that one. All right. Well, with that, uh, we'll let everybody go, and we'll have uh, another podcast soon. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye bye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. 
everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real Traveler Reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.